0: With that, you should have a sermon insert on the front. It says, Psalms, the anatomy of the soul. Lauren Ebel has put together our graphic, and even more so today than any other week past, this graphic is going to be the embodiment of Psalm 57. You have the two theater masks, the smiling, happy one, and a crying, looks like one in pain. This is King David in Psalm 57, who is simultaneously going to be lamenting and crying for us, but also celebrating and praising and worshiping God in Psalm 57. So, as is our custom every summer, we have been taking a break from the sermon series we've been working on, and we spend the summer in the Psalms. The Psalms being the inspired hymn book of God's people. These are prayer songs They were sung and chanted by David and the Old Testament people of God up into Christ. Christ chanted and sang these psalms. He memorized them. He is singing one from the cross. And the New Testament church of Paul, writing to the Ephesians, writing to the Colossians, there were commands that he gave the people that when they gathered, they would be about these psalms. They would sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with thankfulness in their hearts to God. This is a book for us friends, a book of prayers, a book of prayer songs. We are in Psalm 57 this morning, so let's stand for the reading of God's Word. I will read these 11 verses, and then we will jump right into studying God's Word together. To the choir master, according to Do Not Destroy, a midcom of David when he fled from Saul in the cave... Be merciful to me, O God, be merciful to me, for in you my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings I will take refuge, till the storms of destruction pass by. I cry out to God most high, to God who fulfills his purpose for me. He will send from heaven and save me. He will put to shame him who tramples on me, selah. God will send out his steadfast love and his faithfulness. My soul is in the midst of lions. I lie down amid fiery beasts, the children of man whose teeth are spears and arrows, whose tongues are sharp swords. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. They set a net for my steps. My soul was bowed down. They dug a pit in my way. But they have fallen into it themselves. Selah. My heart is steadfast, O God. My heart is steadfast. I will sing and make melody. Awake, my glory. Awake, O harp and lyre. I will awaken the dawn. I will give thanks to you, O Lord, among the peoples. I will sing praises to you among the nations. For your steadfast love is great to the heavens. Your faithfulness, To the clouds. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. I enjoy a story where things turn around, whether it be a a plot twist that you didn't see coming or just a classic comeback story. I enjoy movies and written literature books where things turn, sometimes don't even turn for the better, sometimes it turns for the worse, but, but that, that plot twist, that narrative change is enjoyable to me. I, I think of movies such as The Prestige, M. Night Shyamalan's The Village, or The Sixth Sense, books like Orson Scott Card's Ender's Game, or newer Delia Owens' Where the Crawl Dads Sing. Didn't see that coming. Or, or a classic comeback story, and I apologize, on IMDb, all of their movies, like the top 50 with keywords comeback or comeback story, are all sports movies, <laughs> except one, Harry Potter and the Deathly Hallows Part 2, is extremely high on the comeback story lists. But you think of stories like Miracle, Rudy, Hoosiers, Remember the Titans, we are Marshall. Both Space Jams were on there. Seabiscuit, basically all the Rockies. The story of comeback. The underdog is down and out. It's not looking good, but things turn around. There is a victorious comeback. I like stories with plot twists, with things turning. Psalm 57 is the plot twist. It is... The turning of things for David. Now, make no mistake, it's still a lament. This psalm is almost unanimously uh, called a lament psalm. He is crying out for help. It has all the characteristics of a lament. And if you remember, a couple weeks ago when we started our series in the psalms, we defined a lament using a, a quote from Mark Vrogop's book, Deep, Dark Clouds, Deep Mercy, that a lament is a prayer in pain leading to trust. That's what a lament is. It's a prayer in pain. You're in the midst of pain. It's a prayer in that pain that leads your heart, leads your soul to trust in God and his goodness. It's a process sometimes. The lament psalms are raw in terms of emotion. They are wrestling with God. They're being honest with God. They're saying things that you're kind of like, on a good day, I'm not sure I'd pray that. That's a a little iffy. Can you say that to God? God. The laments are are prayers in which the prayerer or singer starts in a state of disorientation. But through doing soul work with God is moved to a posture of reorientation as they see God. That's what a lament is. But this lament is not just a lament, it's also the plot twist. We see in verse 7 and following a change in David's heart. Where even though he's lamenting, his heart can't, can't stop but sing praise and, and flow over in exuberant singing and shouting for God's goodness and God's deliverance in his life. This is a plot twist. This is a, a turning of things for David in at least two ways. One, historically. I'll talk about this more in just a moment. But this is where David's fortunes begin to change. But it's also a turning of things for David emotionally and spiritually. Because as David sees God clearly, and specifically sees God's attributes, his characteristics, he sees God for who he is, his heart begins to confidently sing. The shadows come into the light. The tears become praise. And that's the main part of Psalm 57 for us, I think. I think that's the thrust for us today, and that is that a correct vision of God and God's attributes can lead those lamenting to confident praise. If we would only see, have a correct vision of God and who God is, we, like David here, will be brought from lamenting to confident praise. I'd like to just split the psalm in half. Verses 1 through 5, we're going to see David praying for deliverance from his enemies. And then in verses 6 through the end, verses 6 through 11, we see David confidently singing, praising God for his deliverance. So, first, verses really 0 through 5. David prays for deliverance. Let's begin in verse zero. You remember, uh, last week I mentioned verse zero is that, that, that part that I put in italics at the very top there. It's in all the original Hebrew manuscripts. It's a part of the psalm. It's to be uh, thought of as a part of the psalm. It's also in these superscriptions, as they're often called, that we, we see a little bit more that these are more than just prayers. We were studying the psalms right now, but I don't want to give the impression that these are just poems to be studied like any other text. They're songs. These are lyrics to be chanted, to be sung, to be put to different arrangements, to be a part of your personal life, sung, and sung in their entirety. It opens with, to the choirmaster." This is to be sung. That, That next phrase, according to do not destroy, though we're not exactly sure what it is, it's likely very similar to the previous two psalms. Do not destroy is likely a tune that they would have known, and you were to sing it to that tune. It's kind of like us today, I think I use the example of Come Thou Fount. You could all just start humming Come Thou Fount right now, or on uh, the, the Solid Rock. You know that tune. You, hey, sing Psalm 57 to the tune of The Solid Rock, and you could make your way through it. That's very likely what Do Not Destroy is. It's a, it's a tune that they were to sing Psalm 57 to. But in these superscriptions, we're not just given instructions on how to sing we're given historical contexts, and we're in the midst of the 50s. The, the Psalms, like 51 and following, a lot of them have these historical contexts. This one says that this Psalm is a mictum of David when he fled from Saul in the cave. Just a brief review here quickly to, to catch us up to speed. Psalm 56, so let's think about last week. Let's read it to you. Verse 0 of Psalm 56 was a victim of David when the Philistines seized him in Gath. And we talked about that last week. That was 1 Samuel 21 if you wanted to read about it. David is on the run from King Saul. He's kind of a, of a, of a servant boy in King Saul's administration. King Saul wants to kill him because he's got word that David actually is going to be the next king and David's going to be the one true king of God's people. You, like Saul, might be a little ticked off at that. He chases after David, he tries to kill David, so David runs, he hits the road, and he thinks that the best and safest place for him to get away from Saul is for him to go to a city called Gath. Gath is a town of the Philistines, an arch-rival, an arch-nemesis of Israel, also happened to be the hometown of a man named Goliath. I don't know why David thought that was going to be a safe place for him. One of the leading cities of the arch rivals of his people and the hometown of the guy he cut his head off of, Goliath. But he thinks I'm in so much danger that that's safer than being out in the, the desert wilderness being chased by Saul. You know, the story goes David pretends to be crazy. He gets captured in Gath, comes before the king, and he pretends to be, be crazy. And King Achish is like, never mind, let him go. He's delivered. God saves him. And that's what Psalm 56 last week and Psalm 34, which is written in the same period, tells us that God heard David's prayer and delivered him. Friends, God hears the prayers of his people and acts in response to their prayers. David then walks out of Gath and he goes into the wilderness and takes shelter in a cave. Psalm 57. And from that cave, David writes these words. It's very likely what's called the the cave of Adullam. You can read about it in 1 Samuel 22 and following. Kiddos, have your your parents read 1 Samuel 22, 23, and 24 to you this week. This is the cave where where, where Saul comes after him. He hears, hey, David's over there in some of the caves. Parents, you know the story. Saul's on his way. He's like, I'm going to find David. Where's David at? But then nature takes over. Saul's got to use the bathroom. He's got to go. He's clinching. He's on his way, and he goes into the cave to relieve himself, and it's the very cave David's in. David's just hiding in the back. And so while Saul's relieving himself, yep, David sneaks up and cuts a piece of Saul's robe off without him knowing. So once Saul's finished, cleans up, he gets out back to his army, and then David comes to the front of the cave and yells out to Saul, God just gave you to me. I could have slit your throat while you were using the restroom. I didn't. I just took a piece of your garment. Look at your garment. You can just imagine Saul looking down like, well, I'll be darned. And so Saul gives up. He's like, fine, and goes home. But in the midst of his cave experience, David's alone. He's afraid. He's been running for his life. We're given these set of psalms. Psalm 57, written in that cave as a lament. Look what David is preaching to his own soul. Verses 1 through 3. Be merciful to me, O God. Be merciful to me. For in you my soul takes refuge. In the shadow of your wings I will take refuge till the storms of destruction pass by. I cry out to God most high, to God who fulfills his purpose for me. Then check this out. Verse 3. He will send from heaven and save me. He will put to shame him who tramples on me. God will send out his steadfast love and his faithfulness. Friends, David rightly recognizes that God is his refuge. Notice the cave is not his refuge, David's ingenuity is not his refuge. Refuge just means safety. It's like a shelter under a tree from a scorching sun. It's a safe place, safe hiding place, a shelter. The cave isn't the refuge, though it is practically. God himself is David's safe place. God himself is the refuge, the hiding place, the shelter. And that should be, could be, can be the song of Of all of our hearts, if we are in Christ alone by faith. Trusting in Jesus, no matter what your situation, no matter what your life looks like right now, no matter what troubles you face, maybe you're in a cave by yourself, God can be your safe place, your refuge, your comfort if we would just go to Him instead of our caves, instead of our comforts, instead of our vices, instead of our beds. These opening verses, verses 1 through 3, we begin to see the God-centeredness of this psalm. Psalm 57 refers to God 21 times, whether by name or pronoun or other descriptions such as refuge and shadow of your wings. 21 times in 11 verses, he's singing about God, to God. God is like this. God does this. God will do this. God, God, God. It's the Lord, specifically even thoughts about God that sees David while he's on the run and while he's in hiding. That's not my natural proclivity. In my darkness and in my pain and in my suffering, just dominated by thoughts of God. And it ought be. While in his distress, while being oppressed by enemies, while suffering and alone and afraid and filled with anxiety, David is consumed with sweet thoughts of his Creator and Redeemer. He's overtaken with thoughts of who God is, and David's preaching that to himself. Remember, God is my refuge. Until the storms pass, he is most high. He will fulfill his purposes to me. He's going he's to rescue me from heaven. Friends, David preaches trust and truth to himself while he's in the midst of the pain. While he's in the midst of the questions, while he's in the midst of the unknown, David doesn't let the pain, questions, and unknown drive him away from God. That's just called apostasy. The new word we've created recently is called deconstruction. That's wickedness and unbelief. David does this with God. This is who he is. This is my situation. Yeah, it stinks, but I will trust in God because this is who he is. This is what he's like. This is what he can do. He's singing songs. He's memorizing scripture. He's chanting to himself in this cave. And so like for David, so for us. God's attributes, God's character ought to fuel our perseverance and dominate your thoughts and your affections, whether in suffering or out of suffering. I'm using the word attributes. I just simply mean the various aspects of God, his qualities, his traits, and specifically the ones unique to him. The divine attributes. We think of things like all-powerful. He's omnipotent. He is sovereign. There is nothing that happens in life that he does not first ordain. He is in control of everything, even your bad. He's righteous. He's omnipresent. I mean, that means he's present everywhere. There is not a place God is not. He's all-knowing. What you just thought about, he knows it. What you just thought about right there, he knows it. He just knew what you thought. There's nothing you can think or do that he doesn't know. He's all-knowing. And those attributes did something for David. Those aren't just sweet thoughts. Wow, this is getting kind of nerdy and theological. Wow. No, David knew these truths and it was it, was, it functioned in his life. It changed his worldview. It alters the way you see your suffering, the way you see your future, the way you look at your situation. God's sovereignty, that nothing comes into our lives but by the hand of God, did something for David. Practically. God sending help, verse 3, from heaven and saving David. That is that he's all-powerful. There's no one stronger. God is omnipotent. That functioned for David's soul. You might do daily life differently if you rightly saw that you're in partnership and your friend is the all-powerful king of the universe. God seeing and God knowing David's situation, that is that he's all-knowing and he's omnipresent, meant confidence and peace for David. I could go on, but friends, God's attributes and God's character ought to fuel our lives. It ought to fuel our faith and our perseverance, and it should dominate our thoughts and our hearts. But here's the tricky part. We can't be fueled by God's attributes if we don't know God's attributes. You can't enjoy and draw energy from God and who He is if you don't know God and who He is. We can't let God's character dominate our thoughts and dominate our hearts if we don't know God's character. But the good news is, we don't have to guess. We don't have to fashion God to look just like us. We're not left in the dark as to, I wonder what the Lord thinks about this situation or what he's like in these types of scenarios. Because he's told us. We know what God is like, he's spoken in the scriptures. This afternoon, God can talk to you. Read your Bible. It's not original to me, but also God can speak audibly to you. Read your Bible out loud. Verse 5 gives us this refrain of the psalm. He repeats it at the end. Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. This verse highlights some of what's encapsulated in one of God's names in verse 2. God most high. That is that God is, in fact, all-powerful. There's nothing He can't do. But He's also, we could say, all-important. Supremely important. Friends, the God of the Scriptures, the living Creator, Redeemer, God, is utterly beautiful completely wonderful, good, glorious. will never be exhausted. And we have the privilege of all of our days getting to know Him and to know Him more. Having worked with students for almost 12 years now, 6th through 12th grade, being in vocational ministry for almost a decade, So I said that because I work with students, and this is especially true of them, but before I throw them under the bus and trample them, um, it's all of you, actually. It's my heart, too. And that is the ever-present temptation for you to think you're really important and that you're the center of the universe. Again, especially true of the 6th through 12th graders. Invincible center of the universes. We're just less invincible center of the universes. Just look at the way we speak in conversations. How many times is someone telling you about their vacation or, or the way they're doing something or this experience they had, and you just cannot wait to jump on telling them how you had the same experience when you should just shut up? How many times someone is, is sharing something, and you're like, well, oh, yeah, I, I did that too, and let me have the stage. You're, you've been in the, in the spotlight long enough. Let me tell you. It could also look a little craftier, us center of the universe types. Our lack of asking questions of other people. It's usually a telltale sign that you think you're the center of the universe. In conversation, a lack of taking genuine interest in the person right in front of you and asking them real questions taking an interest in their life and asking follow-up questions. Not you. You're probably the center of the universe. I could go on and on and on, but friends, this is an epidemic in in our students. It's an epidemic in this room because it's an epidemic in my own heart as well. We think we are big stuff, all important, glorious, and the center of the universe. Of course someone wants to hear about my time and what I think on this hot topic, or this most recent trend, or what's going on. And I will say, it would make total sense for you to dominate conversations, to ask no questions, to think more highly of yourself than you ought. It would make sense for you to be the center of the universe. If You were supremely important, utterly beautiful, completely wonderful, good and glorious, and the one who from heaven can send help and save. But you are not. Don't get me wrong, you're important. You're made in the image of God. You have dignity and value, and you are loved and liked by God and God's people. But you are not the center of the universe, so get out of the center, Jesus Christ, crucified and risen, or to use the exact verbiage of our psalm, God most high is. And when rightly seen, God being exalted above the heavens and the prayer of let your glory, God, be over all the earth makes sense. And when seen rightly, God's people spend the rest of their days making much of God. Making him more and more famous. Assisting in the spreading of God's glory to the ends of the universe. Friends, I simply ask, is verse 5, the heartbeat of your life. Do you want it to be? Because there's good news in bringing God glory. To riff off of Dr. John Piper who spent his life with this mantra, that God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. The beauty of bringing God glory is that we get something too, everlasting joy and pleasures forevermore. We get satisfaction, contentment, delight when we are glorifying God, not when we're living for the center of the universe, for ourselves. Is this the heartbeat of your life? A heartbeat of your life, even? This means certain things for our schedules, for our calendars, for our extracurriculars, for our hobbies. You actually don't have to have any of the extracurriculars you have or any of the hobbies that you have. You don't even really have to do the work that you do if, in fact, it's drawing your heart away from God. You do have to be a Christian. You do have to be about Lord. Be exalted above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. You have to worship God the King. You have to be about the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And so friends, if if, if you're slow to consider Jesus in your time, in your career, in your daily rhythms, in your weekly rhythms, in your monthly rhythms, in your extracurriculars, in all that you do, in your pocketbook... I might consider that you could be about your glory filling the earth than the Lord's. David's trouble begins to change in verse 6 and following, where he confidently sings, praises God for his deliverance. His posture changes here. It's a lament, so he has like one foot in lament, but he has another foot in thanksgiving and in praise. It's not unlike this past week, my wife and I had the privilege with our children of house sitting for my in-laws. We like it because they live just west of Cincinnati in a town called Lawrenceburg. You might know Lawrenceburg if you've ever been to Perfect North Slopes. They live just a mile away from the slopes. They're in this nice community, so I I got to ride my bike a lot. Their neighborhood lives on State Line Road. It is the border of Ohio and Indiana, the privilege of of riding my bike a couple times, uh, which is way harder out there with all the hills, but uh, a couple times I'm riding State Line Road and I'm in Ohio and then I swerve and I come back into Indiana. I was right in the middle a couple times and tried to like reach out and get in both Indiana and Ohio at the same time. Psalm 57 is in lament and thanksgiving. A cry for help, I'm in pain, I need you Lord, but oh, awake, I can't help but sing and give thanks to God for his steadfast love and goodness. I'm saying that because in your lamenting, don't think for one minute. Lament means quiet. That lament means tears and sadness only. You can be in the midst of lament, and as you see God, you can't help but sing for joy. It can be both. Verse 6 repeats a uh, common theme in the Psalms. They set a net for my steps. That's the enemies. They set a net for my steps. My soul was bowed down, they dug a pit in my way, but they have fallen into it themselves. This idea that the bad guys and the bad gals make some sort of trap for David, and that trap actually gets them, is a repeated theme throughout the Psalms. It's all over the place, actually. And God is often the one who orchestrates that. They tried to trap you like this, well, this trap, the Lord caused them to fall into it. The very spears that they use, the traps, the netting that they use to try to catch David actually hurt them. And as David remembers that, time and time again, God's delivered me. Time and time again, God has provided. God will send help from heaven because God is omnipotent, omniscient, omnipresent. He's sovereign and he is full of covenant love, steadfast love. His heart changes. Look at verse 7. My heart is steadfast, O God. My heart is steadfast. I will sing and make melody. David's heart being steadfast is not the same as God's steadfast love. In verse 3 and in verse 10. When God says he has steadfast love, that's God's covenant love. His unbreaking, never giving up, forever and always love for his people. It is a covenantal, a solid love. When David says his own heart is steadfast, I'll just quote commentator Derek Kidner here. He says, Steadfast is not the same word as in the expression steadfast love, which translates a single Hebrew noun, hesed. But this is quite a common adjective for things that are steady And well prepared. In the cave, alone, afraid, with tears in his eyes, David says, Though as I see you, God, my heart is steadfast. My heart is steady and well prepared. That took effort for David. But just as a reminder, there is an aspect in which we put effort into our relationships with God. We can make steady our own hearts. Are you working at it with the help of the Spirit, preparing for when the lament comes? Are you fighting to see God for who He is and His attributes so that you with David can say, whatever happens tomorrow, my heart is steadfast? It just might look like a steadfast heart that also has tears in my eyes. Or it could look like a steadfast heart that sings for joy. And that's where David goes next. Verse 8, awake, my glory, awake, O harp and lyre, I will awaken the dawn. If you had a paper Bible, I thought about changing this in your insert, but I didn't. Verse 8, awake, my glory. You would have a footnote right next to glory. It's the same word used for whole being. My whole being, awake. David is preaching to himself, awake, mind, heart, get up, coffee or not. Awake, everything that I am. Awake, musical instruments, harp and lyre, so that I will awake the dawn. Has this double meaning that David is waking up early to sing praises and to pray to God. But it has this other meaning, awake, I will awake the dawn. He's going to shout praises and wake everybody else up around him because he can't help but sing. If you've been in northern Africa, eastern Africa, or the Middle East, you're very aware of the very early Muslim chanting that happens. I've experienced awaking the dawn. David is saying, "Uh, Muslims didn't create that. That's God's people who did that. We're the ones who have originally woken up and and woken up everybody in our neighborhood from singing and shouting the praises of God. David is calling his whole being to worship here. Friends, all of you, not corporately, you individually, all of you should be involved in worship. Our mind, our heart, our affections, Our bodies should be involved in the praising of God and in His glory. This is my probably once a year reminder to us. Every time we're in the summer psalms, I do this, but I have more recently hit it because it was a theme in our Revelation series when we were going through Revelation. This is my yearly reminder to us that God's people are a singing people. Not an option. Even if you don't have a good voice. It's not about whether the Lord has given you a good voice or not. It's whether or not the Lord has given us a song to sing. And oh, has he given us a song to sing. It would make sense that God's people are a singing people because we are made in the image of a singing God. Genesis 1, in the creation story, most scholars believe that it's laid out poetically there because It's very likely that when God spoke the universe into existence, he was singing. We know that David sings because Zephaniah 3 tells us God sings over his people. He sings with joy over us. Replete in the Psalms, all over the Psalms is the reality of creation singing. We opened our service today with a song, praise the Lord ye heavens. And we were telling creation around us to sing. God's people, every time they saw a redemptive act in history, sang. Moses parts the Red Sea. God, through Moses, leads the people on dry land across the Red Sea. And what's the first thing they do on the other side? Sing. Jesus, in his last supper, which we're about to, to go to together at the table, what did they do? They sang a psalm. What did Jesus Sight, likely chant, from the cross, Psalm 22. And then as I mentioned at the very beginning, Paul then tells the churches to sing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Because why? Colossians 3 tells us that is a primary way that the word of Christ dwells in us richly. We are a singing people. And I I want us to be a singing people, not just on the Lord's Day, today, for the little bit of time before and after the sermon. Singing is not the warm-up to the main part of church, which is the sermon. As much as I wish that was true as the preacher, it's not true. And fortunately, as the preacher, you'll probably remember promises, which we just sang 20 minutes ago more than anything I've said today. Why? Because we are wired in our minds to have truth Nailed down even deeper to lyric, to meter, to song. We're a singing people, friends. I hope you take this with you. I hope you are a singing people this afternoon with your family. A singing people Monday through Saturday in your car and in the gym, whatever you do through the week. I hope, fathers, you are leading your families in singing here and all week. That if your little ones look up to you while we're singing here in a few minutes, they see you, Dad, singing. Whether you have a good voice or not, God's people sing. It's commanded of us. And then our psalm concludes with the refrain, Be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. How was that to be accomplished? How is God to be exalted above the heavens? And how is God's glory going to be over all the earth? In what manner is that accomplished? And by whom? Friends, we now can answer those questions with exact clarity. Because the more full revelation that we have, the clearer picture that we have now in the Lord Jesus Christ. Let me give you a little sample from Ephesians chapter 1 where we'll conclude. Paul says, In Christ, we have redemption through His blood, the forgiveness of our sins, according to the riches of His grace, which He lavished on us according to His purpose. And here, listen to this. Which God set forth in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time, to unite all things in Him, things in heaven and things on earth. The point of all of human history is Jesus Christ crucified, risen, and reigning. Jesus and in Him alone, all things in heaven and on earth will be united. God is being exalted above the heavens in Jesus Every time a new person hears about Christ and bends the knee in humble reliance on Jesus, God's glory is filling the earth more and more. And it's not just some abstract thing. Paul, the very same Paul that wrote Ephesians 1, wrote Ephesians 3. And he says all of that, the good news of Jesus, his substitutionary death for sinners, the redemption that is in his blood, and his resurrection where he conquered sin and death was to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things so that through the church the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places you know that? God's being exalted above the heavens and God's glory being over the earth is accomplished in and through and only in and through the church. The church is the place where God lives. The church is the place through which God then works that good news of Jesus in whom we have redemption through His blood is a news given to us, the church, and to no one else. And it's through us, the church, that we then turn and face outward from this building and take that news and herald that news in our neighborhoods. We pray that news over unreached people groups. We take that news into our workplaces because it's through us working in partnership with Jesus and making much of him that God is exalted above the heavens and God's glory will be over all the earth. I'm mentioning all that because that gets me excited to do my normal and mundane and ordinary life, whether a stay-at-home mom or a construction worker, whether in an office park or working from home, whether behind a computer all day or teaching children, whether a pastor or whatever it is we do, We are the church. We have a fun part to play in exalting God above the heavens and letting His glory be over all the earth. Friends, about 2,000 years ago, God took on flesh in the person of Jesus of Nazareth. That is the ultimate plot twist. The ultimate turning of things for God Uh, for God's people. That is the ultimate comeback story for us, the descendants of Adam, who were estranged and cursed and damned without God's grace and mercy. And yet the ultimate turning of things for us is in the face of Jesus, who lived the righteous, perfect life that you and I could never live. We haven't lived. And he went to the cross for all the sins you did last week and was murdered for them. The righteous and just wrath of God was poured out on the perfect Jesus so you don't have to ever experience it. And the consequence for our sin was that it killed Jesus. And yet he burst forth from the grave three days later, conquering sin and conquering death for us so that you are promised and you... Are more sure to rise in resurrection on the last day than you are tomorrow morning to rise out of bed. That is the ultimate plot twist, the ultimate comeback story. That we get to know God in and through Jesus, and we are the church entrusted with the message of Jesus and get to take it to the four corners of the earth or just to our office. And it's a story that we get to relive each week as we go to the table. A story, a plot twist, a turning of things for us when we get to take of the bread and preach to ourselves the body of Jesus broken for us. The body of Jesus of which we are a part. And when we take that the the red wine or white grape juice and drink it to ourselves, reminding ourselves of the blood of Jesus which was poured out to cover your sins, and to cover my sins. So we now know nothing other than everlasting joy. We're going to go to the table now and remember this turning of things for us. This, this plot twist in history. Jesus crucified and risen. So that we can say, be exalted, O God, above the heavens. Let your glory be over all the earth. Because you, God, are the center of the universe. I'm going to pray for us. And after I do, you'll exit your rows to this side of the room. You'll go